There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Shantanu Bhattacharya about his literary novel, One Small Voice. Shantanu grew up in India and studied at the University of Oxford and the National University of Singapore. He is the winner of the 2021 Mo Shiran Prize and he now lives in London. In this episode, we discuss how Shantanu wanted to explore the experience of millennial Indians in a rapidly changing world, using the structure of his novel to add intrigue and suspense, and the advice from Max Porter that transformed his work. But first, here's Shantanu with an excerpt from One Small Voice. There is a fire burning somewhere far away. From his window in this Mumbai flat, he watches the lines of smoke rise up to the December sky like paintbrush strokes. He wonders whether it is a blaze or a funeral pyre. Shrad, the Hindu funeral rite to bid farewell to the dead, gets its name from Shraddha, the utmost sincerity with which one is to perform the ceremony. He has never been to one, but he can imagine ghee dripping into the flames, the echoes of chanting mantras. Other communities have other rituals. Some stand in silence, heads bowed. Some join hands and whisper prayers. Some sit in communion. And some leave their dead to be devoured by vultures, returning to nature what belongs to nature. But what of those who are never remembered, forcefully forgotten, like they'd never lived, loved, lusted, laughed? What if there is no name to remember them by? No face, just a little something left, a whiff. A crackle, the eyes. Hi, Shantanu. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, One Small Voice. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for having me. So, can you start by telling us what One Small Voice is about? So, One Small Voice is the coming of age of a young man uh, in contemporary India. Uh, it is the story of Shubhankar Trivedi, who also later in the novel calls himself Shabby. And uh, he is growing up in um, in the North Indian city of Lucknow um, in the 1990s. And in 1992, um, when it, which is kind of when the story begins, there are riots across the country and Shubhankar witnesses um, something really terrible, an act of mob violence as a 10-year-old. 
Now, for multiple reasons, he decides not to talk about what he's seen, and he keeps it all kind of bottled in. The story then follows him over the next 25 years of his life. Um, and in some ways, he's trying to find a way out of that trauma and to reconcile with what he's seen, find some form of closure. But uh, in other ways, he's also experiencing life as a young person in modern India. So he moves out uh, for work to the big city of Mumbai. And, you know, he's making friends, the concept of you know, chosen family, exploring sexuality, um, you know, earning his own money and all of those things that as, you know, young adults people experience. So that is there as well. And through his life, we're also, we're also looking at a young person's life in contemporary India and the changes that have taken place in the country um, and kind of the constant struggle between modernity and tradition between uh, a country that is still kind of stuck in many ways in the colonial ways of being but also trying to kind of be the next tech superpower um, yeah the various contradictions in modern Indian life are the kind of things that also impact Shabi and his uh, and his peers mm. even just the way you're describing it there I'm just thinking back to the novel I was just amazed by what an ambitious novel this is and I said to you before we started recording, I'm just stunned and so impressed that this is your debut novel because thematically you deal with so many topics that probably far too many to talk about in this episode. But I was loving if you could, I'd love if you could tell us kind of where this all started for you. Where did the idea start? I know you started out with about 25,000 words many years ago, but where did that first idea come from? Yeah, uh, for, thanks for saying that. Firstly, I think that was that was one of my biggest um, concerns, if you will, when writing this novel. Um, that there is probably too many too many themes in there, um, but I also didn't want to discount any of them because um, this is a person's life over thirty years, um, you know, and a life is not just one thing or two things. A life consists of many different. Um, many different themes, many different kind of ideas, many different people come and go in our lives. And, you know, and I needed to be able to write about all of these to make this a full story and a fully realized character. And not just Shabby, but also the characters who populate the novel as kind of his, his friends, his family, his neighbors, and so on. I needed to give everyone kind of their, their time in the sun, if you will. And um, if that led me to themes, then I was happy to explore them. The challenge then was how do I bring all of it together? Uh, and it did take quite a few drafts to get it right, uh, if I have gotten it right, that is. Um, yeah, I I actually, like, it's it's so, it's way back now, in 2012, that this idea came to me. So it's difficult to kind of put a finger on where this came from. But I think I wanted to write something about my generation of Indians, millennials, who were growing up in um, in times that were quite unique to us. So in a way, you know, the internet had come in. Uh, we were very global, uh, you know, as kind of urban Indians in terms of being globally connected, understanding the world in a way that was very different to how our parents understood the world. Um, we had also gone through a huge wave of economic liberalization in the 90s as a country that really opened up the markets, brought in a lot of job opportunities, brought in this whole technology sector that India is doing so well in. But that also meant that the way we understood 
money the way our generation understood kind of community and values and things like that were really uh, being kind of put under the scanner. Um, and again, it was very different to our parents. Um, there was also this whole kind of rise of the right-wing politics since the early 90s that has now taken on a very kind of mainstream, um, that has come into the mainstream now. So that was happening alongside as well. So there were all these different things that were being thrown at us um, as young people um, that in a way we didn't quite know how to respond to. And you know, in spite of what's happening around in the world, we were still kind of young people just kind of looking to hang out with friends and have fun and experience life and travel and all of that stuff, you know, fall in love and um, all of that fun stuff. Um, and I felt like there was just a lot of push and pull that our generation was going through. And I wanted to write something that in a way, you know, memorialize that and put that time that we had lived through. And we are continuing to, on, a, on record, if you will. Mm. See, even again, when you're saying it now, I'm just like, it would blow my mind to think, how can I condense that into a book? But you obviously were really determined to do that. How did the story develop then? So you started off in 2012 of 25,000 words. At what point then did you go back to it and turn it into a full novel? So uh, what I wrote in 2012, I think, you know, in, in kind of the literary workshops and stuff, writing workshops, you'd call it a character sketch. I didn't know what it was back then because I wasn't, I had I'd studied engineering and I wasn't kind of plugged into the literary or the writing world at all. Um, but I think the 25,000 words was essentially a character sketch of Shabby uh, and his family. I was very focused on him and his friend Ganjeri and his mother. Um, those were the three characters for me that really stood out. And it was an examination of their interactions. And But I didn't kind of get a sense of where the story was going. I put it away because I didn't think I had the skill. I knew what I was trying to do was quite ambitious. And I had to, at some point, when I read what I had written, I had to admit to myself that I don't have the skill to do this. Um, and if you feel like, you know, you're not, not meeting up to your kind of standards of quality, you very soon lose interest in that project, right? Mm. Like, I can say I want to play Bach on the piano, but if you know it's sounding, it's not sounding good, then you start to lose interest in the project. Um, so that's what happened. And I put it away for five years. In the meantime, I moved to the UK. I kind of went to university here to do my master's, started working. So there were other life things that were happening. It was in 2017 that I picked it up again and started writing. I said, let me just write a chapter. Um, and then, you know, another chapter. Right. This is I'm having fun with this. Let's write another chapter. And then it was in Feb 2019 that I finished the first draft. Uh, and when once I'd written the full novel end to end, that is when I think it really got serious. And that's when I said, you know, this is something, now that I've written it, I can't go back. You know, now yeah. I'm really committed to this. And, you know, no matter what it takes, I still had no idea because I don't belong in any way to the publishing industry. I had no inroads. I was also in a very new country as a very new immigrant. Um, so had no idea where to start the process of getting published. But But I said, since this is their fully written novel, I'm now committed to the idea of, you know, rewriting and redrafting and putting my work out there and querying agents and seeing where it goes. 
Mm. Well, thank goodness you did. And I will delve back into that in a minute, but I want to hear more about Shabby first. Um, we've heard a little bit about how you kind of created him with this character sketch. Tell us a little bit more about him. What's his sort of view on the world as he grows up and comes of age in this novel? So Shabby is very interesting to me because he's he's somebody I kind of felt like I didn't know very well. And then as I was writing him, you know, with successive drafts, I realized that's also because he doesn't know himself very well in a way. And um, one of the reviews of the book after it came out said he's an observer, he's a witness, then an active participant. And that I think hit the nail on the head in a way that I could never have articulated. Um, he is, I did want to create somebody who is very um, kind of an everyman, somebody who we can all relate to somebody who thinks things but doesn't always convert it into action. Um, you know, he's he, he's not the brightest person. Or he's not the you know the best at academics at school, or he's not the funniest person in the room, or the best looking person. In that way, he's quite average. Um, he's also not socially inept, though. You know, he's making friends and he's kind of fending for himself. Um, so he's kind of there, somewhere in the middle. I feel like, like most of us are, you know, we. But but he does have a spark, and his spark is art. Like most of us, I feel like each of us has that one superpower, and once we discover it and acknowledge it, then that's that's kind of you know that gives us a sort of identity that we didn't have before we discovered it. So his superpower is art. He is very good at drawing, very good at painting, uh, but that never really gets cultivated, given the kind of very. Uh, rigorous, academically oriented middle class upbringing that he's having. Um, but also, he's different from everyone else because he's he's seen something that very few people would, you know, and that experience has, in a way, scarred him, but also formed him because he now has a view of the world from a very young age that very few people do. Um, and that gives him a certain kind of stoicism to kind of stand back and watch the world with an understanding and wisdom that maybe his peers don't have. So it was a very interesting and complicated character. He doesn't he doesn't say a lot. In fact, you know, everybody else in the book is far more illustrious than he is. Um, he doesn't always say a lot. He is observing a lot. Um, but he is that stable pair of shoulders for me who could carry that story forward. Uh, and in uh, in Indian storytelling, we have this concept of a sutradhar who translates to carrier of the thread. And that is to me what he became, uh, you know, as I wrote successive drafts, he was the one person who could carry the story forward. Everyone else had this wild energy that could take the story in many different directions. And for me to tell the story, I needed him to kind of walk with us step by step and take us through to the end. I'm going to ask you a really technical question, I guess, about the structure of the novel, because your novel switches between different time periods. And when we're in a, a I guess, a, a nearer to our, few, our present time, we know that an incident has happened, but we don't know what it is. And we know that Shabby's dealing with, um, you know, his parents have arrived at his apartment and we're not quite sure what's happened. And we don't find out till later in the book. And I wondered whether this idea of the structure had always been something that you 
had known you wanted to do or was that something that came out kind of in later drafts? Um, it did, did come, come out in later drafts. So the first few drafts I had written were chronological. And I think it was only after I got an agent and it was her feedback to say that it would be good to know that we're reading towards something because again, this novel, because it spans 30 years, you're reading a child's experience and adolescent's experience for the first hundred odd pages. And sometimes it might be difficult to to engage because, you know, I also didn't want to over explain everything and, you know, make the child tell us everything that they're feeling. But as a reader, then it becomes difficult to fully kind of dig our kind of nails into the story. And therefore, I wanted to bring some of the adult experiences and adult voices from the latter part of the book to the front. So then when I started thinking about how I could do that, this is the structure that we arrived at, um, my agent, and then when I started working with my editor, that's the structure that we arrived at where, you know, we, we kind of ground this around that incident um, and the present timeline would lead up to the incident so that there's also a, also a suspense, an element of suspense for the reader as to what exactly has happened that has brought him to this point. But also then, you know, have the parallel timeline that could tell the story from childhood. Mm-hmm. And then it, it kind of marries up at some point and it becomes one, a single timeline. Mm. I, I'm going to ask you this because I had to do a similar thing in that one of the first conversations I had with my editor was about changing the, the structure and the timeline. I wonder how you felt when you had that conversation. Was it a kind of a, a panic of fear of, oh no, I've got to completely rework it? Or were you kind of quite open to the idea of, of making those changes? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, so I actually, what, what I submitted to publishers and, you know, when this book got picked up by my editor, the structure was even crazier. So I'd kind of gone into, <laughs> I'd kind of gone into some sort of like, let's make this really experimental and let's, you know, let's throw everything into a melting pot. And uh, that was fun, actually. I, you know, it, it, it was its own novel, um, but it was a very, very crazy structure. And so in a way, my editor helped me streamline it more. I think it, she, what she did was she made this more accessible to readers, to a wider set of readers. Whereas what I had then was very experimental. Um, and it would be kind of a very limited set of readers who would probably understand what's going on. I had to keep up with a lot of things because there were so many mm-hmm. different types that I was working on. And I played around with like first person versus third person and all of that stuff. Um, so I'd really gone left to field with that. So uh, in a way, I'm quite grateful to my editor for <laughs> reining me in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've always been very open to the idea of collaboration. Um, I think because, like I said before, I don't come from, um, you know, a creative studies background, a fine arts background. Um, I actually really enjoy the process of collaborating because I feel like for years I've just been writing by myself without um, without any proper feedback. So when the book deal happened, when I got my agent and then the book deal happened and I got some mentorship before that as well, and I started really seeing the value of getting feedback and responding to it. And I felt like every time I'd hear something, even from, you know, I was part of a writing group. So it's just not kind of editor, agent and mentor. It's also my peers that I was getting feedback from. Every time I'd hear something, it would get my creative juices flowing. And every time somebody would ask a question as I don't understand why this happened or um, I don't really get what they're feeling at this point. Um, I would, my, I'd come back with the question of how do I make this more accessible to them? How do I, how do I give them what they're looking for? And maybe I don't, I don't do what they're asking me to because mm-hmm. sometimes people come to you with solutions you know, slash this character or move this thing there or whatever. So I don't I don't necessarily need to take their solutions on board, but I do take their doubts and confusions on board and see how I can I I, I can kind of address them in a way that would be integral to my my values of storytelling. But yeah, it was a really fun experience collaborating. So I, I wasn't very daunted by it. And you mentioned your mentorship there, and that was with Max Porter, um, yes. who helped you shape the novel. And I wondered how that mentorship came about. Was it did you win a um, an award, or I know you've won other awards, but um, how did that mentorship come about? Yeah, so it was as uh, you know, as part of a prize I won. So I won the Life Writing Prize for a very different piece that I had written, a more kind of a short memoir piece. And his mentorship came as part of that uh, because his first book is a memoir. Grief, grief is um, 
FIFA is the thing with feathers. Yeah. But um, but when I had my first call with him, I told him that I wasn't really in the headspace to think about that piece and growing that piece into something bigger because I have been working on this novel for so long and this is really what I want my first book to be if there will be a book. Um, and he got really excited as well. I was quite, I was quite scared telling him that because I felt like we'd been paired up mm. mentorship thing because of the life writing prize and the expectation would be for me to work, continue working on that memoir. But, um, but he got really excited about the novel and uh, I think he was only expected to read about 20,000 words or something of anything I write. Um, and I told him my novel's 100,000 words and he said, send the whole thing over and I'll read it. Wow. It's extremely generous. He read it. He gave me very detailed feedback. We talked about a lot of things around, uh, you know, around the structure as well, not just the flow of time, but the flow of energy from one scene to another. You know, what what is your reader feeling at a, in a certain scene? And therefore, you know, do you want to, the next chapter that you place in the order, do you want them to hold on to that feeling from the previous chapter or do you want to take them somewhere else? So in a way, really putting yourself in the reader's shoes. Uh, and I think his powers as one of his, his skills as an editor really came through as well. And um, and he's been such a huge supporter. Uh, he's been a friend. He's been a mentor. Um, uh, yeah, I've been very very fortunate to have him as uh, as somebody who's been part of this book. Mm. You mentioning there about the kind of the journey that the reader goes on. I had this amazing piece of um, well, it wasn't advice actually. It was just a writer talking about how they write. And I think it was Claire McIntosh, the crime writer, and she was saying that she, when she's writing her novel, she does almost like a chart next to what she's writing, where she charts the kind of emotional journey of the reader as well. And I thought that was an amazing thing that I'd never even thought about, you know, to to decide kind of how you want the readers to be feeling or what they might be questioning at what point. And I just, that kind of blew my mind. I'd never thought about that before. Yeah, I I have seen that sort of thing in one of the writing workshops I've done where, there's that whole kind of sign curve or something where you know you start you start at the x-axis and then you take the reader up to like you know give them a lot of joy and then suddenly you drop them into some sort of crisis and then bring them up again um yeah I think it's all good advice happy to happy to imbibe and happy to learn um mm. I try not to be too technical um because at the end of the day it's a work of art and I need to be you know I need to follow my gut on this um I need to, I, so I'm only technical when it comes to the facts, especially this novel is so grounded in facts. It's grounded in real incidents that happen, you know, of uh, incidents of political violence and uh, and things like that, but also cultural references. I needed to check, you know, if I'm quoting a song, was this song out by, you know, this year and things like that. Um, so I'm I'm very technical when it comes to the facts, but in terms of the telling of the story, I like to follow my gut. Um, I think it's something that also grows, you know, as you keep writing. And I could see that improve over over the successive drafts, knowing not just all the journey of the reader, but also kind of knowing how much to say and where you need to stop. You know, in the first few drafts, I feel like I'd over explained things, mm. overwritten emotions. 
And then later, even like to the point of, you know, copy editing, which is the last round of edits we did before the book went into print, I was still kind of taking stuff out. You know, I was still like telling my editor that I think I've overwritten this. And she was like, I'm so happy you see that because I thought the same, but I didn't <laughs> want to say it. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, exactly like where to leave a chapter, where, where you want to keep the reader hanging as well you start kind of developing these sort of um, um six senses as you write more it's hard thing to judge i think and i i i sometimes feel what certainly when i was writing my book where where my confidence would slip i would then over explain something because i wasn't allowing that moment of trust for the reader and it's something that i when i'm mentoring people now a lot of my comments you know are trust the reader we know this already you know and and I think it's hard because when you're starting out you think well I better explain it again just in case they haven't got it the first time so I think it's a totally natural thing to do yeah yeah and also for me in terms of one small voice there was also uh I was aware that because I you know I've always thought of I didn't have a particular kind of reader in mind um so I thought I'm just writing this book for, you know, anyone interested in a good story. But then that also brought in the challenge of making this accessible in terms of culture, in terms of language, because I did want this book to be quite rooted in, you know, the the places and the cultures and the languages that it operates in. So, you know, North India, Mumbai, um, there's a so there are you know, words in Hindi and Urdu in Marathi local languages of those places and I didn't want to not have that I didn't want my characters to sound like English people just because this is an English language book you know there's so much flavor um, that you know that that sort of you know, cultural immersion brings to uh, telling of a story but that also meant that I was very aware that anyone not from that culture would would have to cross that bridge um, and I think that led me to over-explain quite a bit. Uh, also, kind of the historical contexts of some of those incidents that I'm talking about. Um, and then in later readings, I realized that it's fine, you know, I, they, they, they'll get this, you know, or if they don't get it, they can go look it up. So sometimes also just trust the intelligence of the reader and it just makes sure you're giving them enough for them to actually understand the story and the character, mm. the details of it. Some will, you know, some 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 people will just follow the story and finish the book, and some people will, you know, go and Google stuff and read it up for themselves. And but you have to leave them to do that for themselves. So I read that. I mean, you've you've won several writing awards, and you you won the one that led you to your mentorship with uh, Max Porter. And um, I read that you felt that after you'd kind of won those awards, it gave you the confidence to carry on with your writing career and and pursue hopefully a publishing deal which you did get um I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the kind of the journey from finishing your book to getting your book deal so how did you get your agent and things like that so like I said it was 2019 that I finished the first draft and very naively I said the novel's done it's all ready to go sent it out to several agents never heard back from any ever uh, some stock rejections and a lot of silence. Obviously was very disappointed, didn't kind of, you know, know how to move ahead. But also, I think, acknowledged that there is work to be done. In fact, I uh, I was visiting my parents in early 2020 and I, I took a printout 
uh, of the of the full draft and I remember I spiral bound it to make it look like a book and I thought I'm just going to make little edits here and there and I'll be done. And I was sitting at the airport reading it and I was like, this is drivel. I mean, no, no wonder no agent has gotten back to me because I don't know who's going to read this. You know, I can't sit through this myself. Um, and I realized how much work there was left to be done. Um, so I continued to kind of work on it myself um, and get feedback from some friends. So I sent it to a set of, I think, six friends who were also then reading it and giving me feedback. Um, but one of the things I also did, again, because I just didn't know how to break into publishing. I didn't know anyone. I couldn't like pick up the phone and say, you know, could we have a chat about this? Or could you connect me to somebody who would know? Um, I started sending material out to different competitions. So all the kind of the novel competitions for unpublished, unagented writers. Uh, but I also had a bank of short stories. So sending out my short stories or carving out short stories from the novel to send out to all these different competitions. Um, and then there was that memoir piece that I had written a few years back. So I kind of resurrected that, edited that and sent out for the Life Writing Prize as well. So I think all of 2020 was just sending my work out so that, you know, at least so if I get some encouragement, then, you know, that that tells me that this is worth something, that my writing is kind of worth reading and there is some interest out there. And, you know, fortunately, um, I think 2021 was the year when I got shortlisted, longlisted, I won a couple of these prizes. Uh, and I think that really got people's attention and it was a life writing prize um, and the organizers very helpfully uh, sent out an anthology of all the longlisted entries and because I was the winner, mine was the first. So they sent it out to, I think, over 300 agents in the UK. And the day after, um, you know, I kind of was flooded with emails and calls. A lot of people were interested in talking to me. Um, and that's how I got my agent. But it was also a very interesting process because what I had to show them at that point was not the memoir, but a very, very, very different novel. And so it was a good test in a way, because I feel like an agent should be able to represent and celebrate and kind of get behind anything that I want to write. Because I I did, even back then, even though, you know, I was nowhere close to being published, I did think of myself as somebody who would like to keep writing, you know, and my this novel, One Small Voice, wouldn't be the only thing that I would ever write. So therefore, it was almost helpful to having, to, you know, having been noticed for this memoir piece and then present a very different novel and see how agents responded to these kind of very different pieces of work. And quite a few dropped off, you know, quite a few said, your novels, I don't know, I, it's not very interesting or I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't looking for this. I thought you would expand on the memoir and things like that. And then, you know, there were there were those few who were equally interested to represent both. And then finally I can I signed with my agent. But I thought that that was I was very fortunate to have that experience because a lot of times as debut writers, we are probably just working on one thing, one idea, one novel, and that's the only thing that we have to share at that point. We probably don't even know what we'll write in the future. Um so you know, when we sign with somebody, with an agent, 
we get representation based on that one piece of work. Um, and also I feel like as debut writers, I mean, in this extremely competitive world of publishing, at least I was always on the back foot. Any attention I'd get from anyone, I was so grateful for it that, you know, if somebody offered me representation before this prize, for example, I'd just say yes. <laughs> I'd just say, oh my God, I finally found an agent. Yes, please sign me. Let's get this started. Um, so in a way, I was very, very fortunate. And that prize, I mean, I never, never thought when I had written that piece and submitted it, that it would give me so much in terms of choices and options and, you know, the ability to 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 present my these very different pieces of work and make a choice on the basis of that. So I got really lucky there. Mm. It, it kind of sums up what advice I always give to people, which is always enter competitions if you see any, because you never know what's going to happen, even if you don't win, even if you don't make the shortlist, there might be another opportunity from that. Yeah. Also interesting what you said about um, kind of conversations with agents and how I think it's very easy when you start out in the industry to get boxed into being a particular type of writer or when you sign with your agent they're only interested in you for one particular aspect of what you want to write and if you're someone like you who wants to write lots of different things you know memoir fiction um I don't know what you're going to write next but I'm hoping to find out in a minute but um you know then you don't want to feel like you can't expand or experiment and and I think finding that person who will support you whatever you choose to do is 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 the move that you need to make yeah no absolutely and uh, and yeah somebody who's you know, you know it's difficult to say what you'll write and where where a relationship will go it is like a professional relationship right and it's difficult to know where this will go or what whether they will continue to support you throughout and things like that but but at least you know they the fact that they're excited about all your ideas, I think is a good enough starting point. So how has the whole kind of publishing experience been for you? Has there been anything that's been um, particularly difficult or you found challenging? Anything that you think you've learned that you'd like to pass on as a tip, a tip or advice for the next kind of cohort of debut novelists? Wow, <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still learning myself. It's just been three months uh, since the book came out. Um, I think I've been very lucky. You know, there are all these horror stories out there um, of people having really bad experiences. I'd say for me, you know, it was the, the experience was kind of twofold and very, um, very opposite to each other. When I wasn't finding any support for my writing it was just complete silence you know there was just like nothing happening no one interested no one responding uh everyone seeing through me so that was one phase and it, it continued into kind of you know into successive submissions because it's not one thing and you're done right you you know this you're putting your book out there constantly so first step is get an agent second step is you know get a publisher then there's the, you know, the whole publicity and, you know, who will, uh, which festival will have you and which podcast will have you and which bookshop will stock your books and, you know, who will call you for a signing. And so you're constantly kind of, um, you're constantly putting your work out there. It's a, it's, it's, it's a continuous process. Um, it never 
And at, at every stage I said, right, it's done now. You know, it, this is on autopilot. And then something else would come and I'd be like, oh, right, it's not. <laughs> so, um, so it's either just, you know, complete disinterest or it's a lot of support. And I think I'm, what I'd say is that see where your support's coming from, see who your sponsors are, who your supporters are, you know, who's taking to your work and uh, just accept them with gratitude and work with them and, you know, use that for nourishment and use that for, to keep your, you know, to boost your morale um, because, you know, that is, that is rare and that is, um, that is a gift. Uh, and I've had very strong support from, my publishers and the entire team that worked on this book, my agent in terms of what I was trying to do, you know, and especially I think as a writer of color, writing a story that is not, that is from another place, not the UK. Um, I've heard a lot of stories of how editors have tried to curtail or kind of, you know, tailor the content to suit the local market, if you will, and things like that. And I just feel like I don't have any of those stories. You know, I was I was given complete freedom to tell the story in a way that I wanted. And the only inputs that I've had are part of creative collaborations. You know, it wasn't ever to kind of stymie my voice or stymie my creativity. And so I, I, I think I got very lucky there as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, again, like just... I think working with people who understand your work and who respect you as an artist and respect your art is very important. And they come from the most unexpected places, you know. So when you're writing, you might think, oh, this agent would be really good for me, or this editor would be really good for me, or this publishing house would be really good for me. But actually, you know, what turns out in the end is just completely different. And uh, just being open to those possibilities, I think, is also important as a debut writer. Mm. So finally, Shantanu, can you give us a little tease or a hint about what you might be working on next? Like I said, I have so many ideas. <laughs> stage where I'm just like throwing things out of the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, <laughs> there are there are a couple of ideas for novels. Um, there's also kind of a set of short stories sitting. I have to think about what I want to do with them. Uh, and now I'm back from India. There's there's more ideas for short stories uh, that are coming to me. So yeah, we'll really have to see. You know, I um, I do think though that I am, you know, I, I read stories, I like stories and I am a storyteller. Um, so I've kind of now come around to the point where I, I think whatever I write will be fiction in a way, like literary fiction. Um, there was a time when I thought about nonfiction, thought about travelogue, thought about, and those options are still on the table. But for now, I think whatever I write will be, I, that's the most enjoyable form for me. And I think, you know, that's also my strength. Um, so it will be in the form of fiction. Um, you know, even if it's kind of a memoir, it won't be a memoir. It will be fictionalized in a way that will have those cadences of fiction like we talked about you know like there will be a climax and there will be some crisis point and um so that's that at least that I know now that I you know that, that that's what I want to do I want to write stories um yeah but otherwise I think I'm just uh I, I'm in the process of kind of working on things simultaneously um and seeing where they go but I'm also kind of 
okay with the idea of things taking time. You know, I, I know that I, this, you know, one small voice took five, seven, 10 years. I definitely don't want to take that long again. Um, also, hopefully I've learned some tricks and, you know, that would help me write faster and get it right, you know, in the first few drafts. But I do think that it takes a certain kind of emotional immersion and physical as well to kind of get into a certain zone to tell a story. You really have to start living that place, living those characters. And, you know, I don't want to rush it. Um, so I'm very clear about that as well. That like give, give, give the story the space to breathe, and what will come out finally is something that you know will will be good. Yeah. Although, please don't keep us waiting too long. Time to say, <laughs> I don't want to be waiting ten. It years. wouldn't be ten years. I promise it will be. 10 years. <laughs> well, Shashi, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thanks so much, Chloe. That was fun. Thank you. That was Shantanu Bhattacharya talking about his literary debut, One Small Voice which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. <laughs>